Acts 20, verse 13 and through 38, past the call of a pastor. I want to read the text. It's a long text, but just read along with me. <clears throat> but going ahead to the ship, we set sail to Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Matun. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Kaos. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's a long, long section, isn't it, of narrative that we're going to take two weeks at least to talk through. But the reason I want us to read it all together this morning is because we must keep this entire passage in our minds as we think about what is Luke trying to tell us? Well, I think we can distill it down to at least this one statement. We need to understand the call of God on the life of a pastor by seeing a godly example and receiving the necessary commitments to the work of the ministry. 
We need to understand the call of a pastor, not from the culture, even Christian culture around us, but we need to understand it from the inspired word of God and then see a good example of what it means to be a pastor. And I know some of you are already thinking, I should have stayed home today. What does this have to do with me? I've already been asked that question uh, by some. What is this telling me? Well, it's important that the pastors of this church and the people understand the call of a pastor. This passage should not be saved for ministry retreats or pastor's conferences, but rather should be understood by everyone. Because every Christian man in this congregation is called to exhibit the character of a pastor. There are no exceptions. And every Christian man in this congregation should be growing in grace and maturity so that if he has the gift to teach, he becomes a pastor. And every woman, therefore, should be looking at the men of the world through the eyes of the character of a godly man that leads both home and church. It's for everybody. It's not for a select few. My goal over the next two weeks is to remind us of the kind of men that fill the role of pastor in God's church. And I hope that each of you at Grace Fellowship are encouraged to better pray for the pastors of this church and that we will never settle for less than what the Bible shows us should be true of those who lead the flock of God. So let's look at this passage together. We first see and read of Paul's travels with his companions from Troas to Miletus. Paul finished his long night of preaching and worshiping with the believers at Troas, and on the next day, as he had planned, he left to go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> he sent his traveling party by ship to Asos, where he planned to meet them. Paul took a land route about 20 miles from Troas to Asos. He didn't get on the ship, and he did this for reasons we don't know. We can speculate. There's already been a plot, if you remember earlier in the text in 19, by the Jews <clears throat> to kill him on the ship um, that would sail. But we don't know if that's why he did it. He just chose to do that. And <clears throat> it's simply a reminder that Paul was always, I would say that to say he was always facing danger in his ministry. He was constantly having to think one step ahead of those who would plot to kill him, take his life, imprison him, uh, stop the ministry. Even a simple trip on a ship could become death for the apostle. <laughs> it's the kind of life he lived. Paul joined his companions at Asos and they sailed about 44 miles south <clears throat> to the port of Matilm which is the largest city on the island of Lesbos. After reaching Matilm, they continued to sail on between Chios and the mainland of Greece, headed down the strait to Samos. And Paul made the decision to pass by Ephesus, not to go into it. He passed directly by it so that he could reach Jerusalem before Pentecost. And after one more day of journeying on ship, they reached Miletus. At Miletus, Paul called for the elders of Ephesus. <clears throat> Though he wouldn't go into Ephesus, he would call Ephesus to himself, represented by the elders of the church. The church that he had planted, that he had pastored, that he had loved, he'd given his whole self to. They were dear to his heart. He loved them, and so he refused to just go ahead of them and forget them and move on to Jerusalem. He wanted to talk with them further. In this speech, what we're about to look at, we find the only time in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul or anyone else directly addresses a group of elders. His speech is only to them. And um, he, 
It's a contrast, right, from what we see in our day. In a day where it's difficult to find faithful men to pastor God's church, Grace Fellowship is blessed with many men, godly men in leadership. And I've spent the week feeling like the least of these men to stand in this sacred desk and preach this passage. By Wednesday, um, I don't know, I thought maybe I should pen a resignation letter. But by Friday, my heart was filled with joy. Because this describes what I've been called to do. It gives me an example and a hero to look to. And calls me to live the life that only God can empower me to live. I stand before you as a fellow sheep. Under the care of a chief shepherd. Jesus Christ. I stand before you as one called to serve you on your journey to your eternal home with him so that we might all see him face to face. For the next few minutes, it's my goal and my aim to call to, the, to look at this in this passage. The call of a pastor, the example of Paul as a pastor, and to glory in the fact that we have all been bought by the precious blood of Christ. First, I want us to look out of order. I know, for you sticklers, out of order. We're in a narrative text. You have to make decisions. And I think it's the crux of the text that we look first and see what a pastor is called to watch after his own life and the life of the flock which he's been placed under his care. That comes to us in verse 28. If you look at the text in verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God. In verse 28, Paul tells the elders at Ephesus that they are to pay close attention to their own life, their own spiritual health. Not many pastors' conferences start that way, if you've never attended one. Most of them start with really bad jokes, burnt coffee, and people complaining about the sheep that they're shepherds of. Paul starts off by saying, you men need to watch your own life. This is not a small matter because unless a pastor watches over his own soul, then he will not be able to watch after the souls of the flock. And Satan loves to destroy the life of pastors because destroying the spiritual vitality of the pastor brings death to the whole of the congregation. And he knows this. A church body can never rise above the spiritual leadership they've been given by God. So... What should the pastor be doing to watch over his own life? Well, first of all, the pastor must remain vitally connected to Christ through constant study of God's Word and prayer. The only nourishment for the pastor is the living Word of God, which we have as a feast in the Bible. Too many times the temptation of an elder or a pastor in a church is to only study the Bible so that they can feed other people and talk to other people and serve the food to others. But the life of the pastor has to be transformed by the gospel before he can teach the gospel to other people. And Paul knows this, and he wants these elders at Ephesus to know that they must watch their own soul, their own life. He must give himself to knowing Christ and the mind of Christ by memorizing and meditating on the Word. One of my pastoral mentors is Robert Chapman. Some of you have heard me speak of him before, and I know it's kind of weird in our day to talk about mentors who've been dead since 1903. But he is a mentor to me, and he's called the Apostle of Love. He was a single man his whole life. He died at 93. He served God's church in one location 
for 70 years. Spurgeon said of this man, he's the saintliest man I ever knew. And later, Spurgeon said, you can prick that man anywhere and bibbling will fall, flow out of his veins. <laughs> Why was Robert Chapman so powerful as a pastor? Why is he such a great mentor to us? Well, because he studied the scripture daily, walking from cover to cover in God's word for over 70 years, year after year after year. But this is not all that a pastor does. A pastor must first be a man of the word and then of prayer. He must be a man of prayer. And it's this part that troubles all of us, right? Because we're material people and we like, we like the word. I mean, if you don't like the word and you think you want to be a pastor, you don't need to be a pastor. The church needs no creative minds. It needs no innovators. It needs no trailblazers. It needs faithful men who love the word of God. Period. But that's even easy to guys like me who love books and love the book. I was eating dinner Friday night with Amy and she could tell I was thinking through things and so she's trying to open me up and I just told her, there's nothing in this world I love more than the Word of God. It's breathtaking to me. It's not of me. I love it. But it's hard to pray. But a man of God who would take the mantle of pastor, must be a man of prayer. Too often when pastors begin to pray, we turn to praying for other people. Sometimes just the variety of prayer of hellfire and brimstone and imprecatory psalms. And sometimes it's emotional and loving and gentle like a shepherd. But I want to say this. Pastors, we must remember that our Lord Jesus, when he was on the earth, went into deserted places so that he could talk to his Father. While it's important to pray for other people, we, we have to do that. If we will be trusted to pray for others, then we must be under the care of prayer for ourselves. We must talk to God through the Spirit. Our first duty of prayer is to talk to God in a personal way. It's a fact that the Lord Jesus wants to hear the voice of the pastor lifted on behalf of himself before he hears the voice of the pastor lifted on behalf of others. Jesus doesn't want us to come tail-bearing, gossiping to him, even doing a good thing of lifting others up. Jesus longs to hear us talk to him and commune with him for ourselves. This is why we must be men of word and prayer. You can't have one without the other. I think personal prayer should look like adoration toward God and confession of personal sin and thanksgiving for all that God is on our behalf. And only then may we pass on to supplication for ourselves. And only then is it safe to pass on to praying for the body of the flock which has been entrusted. This is the first thing that must be true with a pastor in his prayer life, that he's personal before he's corporate. Maybe... Maybe this is how a pastor becomes like the Pharisee in Luke 18 when Jesus told the parable. Listen to these words. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing to himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
when pastors begin to pray like this about the people, they are to pastor, then they lose the vital connection to Christ needed to do the job, to do the calling. How did this story end? Jesus said, but the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How many of us pastors will be like that Pharisee because we've exalted ourselves in prayer and we've neglected our own souls while praying? Oh, brothers, may it never be. We must remain vitally connected to Christ by prayer and by the word. Many things can be said about the vital connection needed to be a pastor and to watch after our own soul, but I want to say one more thing, and that is that a pastor must always be a doer of the word and not only a hearer or a speaker of the word. The pastor of the church must be living out obedience in personal living so that we may abide in Christ. Jesus said, the one who abides in him obeys his word, does what he commands. So many times we are guilty of undoing our teaching by living out of submission, outside of submission and not in obedience to Jesus Christ. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor of Kidderminster, England, said this in his classic work, The Reformed Pastor. Listen to this. He wrote this book to exposit Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed to yourselves, lest you, your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay a such stumbling box before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinders of the success of your own labor. It much hindereth our work when other men are all week long contradicting the poor, contradicting the poor people in private that which we speak. From the word of God in public. Because we cannot be at hand to expose the folly. So it's a bad thing when a pastor preaches. Then his congregation go out. And they live opposite of what he preaches. Because it undoes the, undoes the preaching. It undoes it, undoes it. Yeah. But it will much more. Listen to what he said. But it will much more hinder your work. If you contradict yourselves. And if your actions give your tongue the lie, and you build up an hour or two with your mouth and all week after pull down with your hands, this is the way to make men think the word of God is but an idle tale. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a word and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Tell me, brothers, in the fear of God, do you regard the success of your labors or do you not take heed to yourselves? This is surely what James meant in James 3 when he said that not many should become teachers of the word. Because they face a stricter judgment. A pastor must remain connected to Christ through the word of God, prayer, and obedience. Or the pastor will become a shipwrecked man on the rocks of this world. He will become the prey of Satan so that the flock is destroyed. Pastors, we must watch over ourselves. And second, he says in verse 28 that elders must pay careful attention to all the flock. Notice that Paul says it's to all the flock that the pastor pays attention or the elders or to pay attention. It's the role of the pastor to watch over all the people entrusted to their care by the Holy Spirit. Pastors must know the people, feed the people the word of God, lead the people toward the kingdom of God, protect the people from the schemes of Satan. The care of the flock looks very similar to the care of the pastor's own soul. First, the pastor must know the flock that he's to give care to. This is why membership in the local body of the church level is so important. Shepherds are called to a specific people in a specific place. We don't have national or regional pastors. 
But instead we have shepherds watching over and caring for their flock, the flock entrusted to them. Elders must not only know the sheep, but feed the sheep. The Word of God is the only source of food from which a pastor has to feed his people. Pastors are not called to teach people their opinions, their politics, or their philosophy. Pastors are called to care for the soul of the sheep by leading them to the green pasture of the mind of Christ. We have the bread of life. We have the bread of life. And now we teach it to the people in our care so that they eat the bread and have eternal life. We care for the souls of the people by knowing them and feeding them. Overseers are called not only to know them and feed them, but to pray for them. Grace Fellowship, your pastors are faithful to pray over you. I just want to tell you that from behind uh, the other side of leadership here. Each of our shepherds has a personal system of prayer for people in this church. Some of the pastors have journals, and I've seen those journals. I, guys, I'm not peeking in your journal, but some of y'all leave them laying around and curious minds, you know. Some of them have journals with the families of the church listed daily for prayer. For others, it's no, a note card system that reminds them to pray for specific families in specific days. For others, it's the electronic device and the church directory with your pictures so they can look at your face and pray over your family. I know this because I've seen it. I've seen it. You're being taught the word and you're being prayed for. And your pastors long to know you. Pastors give leadership to the flock. Grace Fellowship is blessed to have men who think about the current state of the church and how that relates to next year and three years and five years. And on in the future, Corey might be thinking 50 years. Uh, I don't know. We are blessed to have men like this. We have the joy of setting a spiritual direction and a vision in front of you as a flock so you can move towards the eternal home that we all strive to enter into through this life. And finally... It's the call of the pastor to protect the flock from many dangers. Now, I don't want to spend any time on this. I know that's what you wanted me to preach on today. That's next week. But I don't, I don't want to get into the details. I want to save that in this text till next week. But I don't want to leave it out. It's the job of the shepherd to know the people and to know themselves so that they rightly identify the wolves which will come from within the church. And to know which wolves out there this flock is in danger of falling into. Each flock has wolves they're in danger of falling into. And those shepherds need to know their flocks so they can keep their flocks out of those wolves' mouths. But just because your pastor's not speaking about something that another pastor's speaking about to his flock doesn't mean he's not faithful. Remember what I said, we are not national pastors. We are Grace Fellowship pastors. And so we're to speak to the issues that strike our hearts and guard us and protect us. If we don't do that and we don't limit ourselves in that way, number one, we won't be very effective. But number two, number two, we could incidentally build in you the feeling that you're good because you're not them. And then turn you into a wolf to devour your own soul, your family, and those you're friends with. So we have to be alert. We have to know our flock. We have to know our souls. We have to be looking for wolves in the eldership. And we have to be looking for the wolves in the congregation. And we have to be looking for wolves out in the world. I'm not going to say anything else about that. But that we're to carefully attend to the flock. But also pastors are overseers of the flock because the Holy Spirit has given them this role. Notice what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to your own soul and to the souls of the, church, of the flock, which, what? Which has been given by the Holy Spirit. He made you an overseer. And it, it is true that a man must feel an inner desire to be a pastor, but it's not true that that man gets to make himself a pastor. This is too often the case in the modern church. A man desires to be a pastor, so he tells everyone that he is a pastor and that God called him to be a pastor. So who can trump that trump card 
and he gets in the ministry. The truth is that man that has his call, this call in his life will simply start shepherding the people around him because he has an inner desire to do it. And as he shepherds, the people will see his shepherding, recognize the gifts that he's been given to it, and approve him to the role which the Holy Spirit has already given to him and make him then a pastor of the whole flock. I mean, it isn't this way, but a lot of times I get asked the question about calling, like, when were you called to be a pastor? I told Amy. Now, she warned me, don't tell them that this is the only way. It, it's not the only way, so you may be sitting here fighting the call to be a pastor, okay? When I was three, four, five years old, I stood on my mama's kitchen table and preached the sermon that had just been preached. I sat on the well of my dad's tractor and told him at five, six, and seven years old the Old Testament stories that God had recorded for us because I, that's just what I wanted to do while I handed him wrenches and knew nothing else to do. And I wasn't a Christian. I just, I, I had this desire from early in my life. And thank God he saved me, gifted me, and gave me the opportunity. But what if someone had come along when I was young and just said, hey, you could speak good, be a pastor. That's a sorry way to do a man. Oh, I get to be the star, stand up front. Everybody looks at me. Little does that man know, the very people who put him in that position will take him out of that position because he will fail. The only man who stays in the ministry stays in by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit of God who has made him a shepherd over the people. <laughs> no man can take this role. It's given. It's laid on him. It's a burden. He can't avoid it. It's like marriage. He may want to be single, but he can't be single. He just has a desire, and he keeps following that desire until the Spirit puts him in place. And the Holy Spirit puts his pastor, puts his pastors in the churches. Shepherding the flock of God is not a job, therefore. That man that can clock in and clock out because he's met his quota of hours. Elders have a calling that encompasses their entire life. They're never not pastors and overseers. Pastors have their position because God placed them in this position for the good of his church and the glory of his name. So this is the commitment that a pastor is called to live in. Paul makes it very clear in verses 28 A and B that the pastor is to care for his own soul and then to care for all the souls that are entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit. But this is also helpful if we take a short look, a quick look, as quick as we can, at the example of Paul as a pastor. So now we're going to back up to verse 18. First of all, notice, and I'm not going to get into this because this is not what this text is about, but I do want to make mention of it. And when, so in verse 17 it says, he called the elders of the church to come to him. Verse 28, he calls these men overseers of the flock of God. And he later uses a term to talk about shepherding as a verb. Shep they, they were to shepherd. Okay? So all three major titles, elder, bishop, overseer, that's what the word bishop means, pastor, shepherd, all of them are applied to one group of men. Do you see that? In the text, all three titles go to one group of men. In other words, there's no hierarchy in the Bible. This is not a power position. These are sheep set apart and gifted to do a job and a task among the sheep for the glory of God. And by the way, the term noun pastor is used only once. It's not the favorite title of the apostles for the men who would hold the office of elder. Elder is the most favored ter term Next, overseer. Why wouldn't they do that? Because there is really, truly one shepherd of the flock. His name is Jesus Christ. 
He sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And he appoints for himself, through his spirit, men, sheep, like the sheep, but called and set apart and gifted to love them and care for them as they go toward him, the shepherd of their soul. So there's no hierarchy and no, none of that, no power position. It's all put down in what we might call a democratized system. It really is. I know that makes us uncomfortable, but that's kind of what it is. But look at Paul's life. Paul was a selfless pastor. In verse 19, the first part of, part of verse 19, he served the Lord. So he sees himself as a servant of the Lord with what? All humility. He shows that he is selfless by his humility to serve the church. It's the only time in Paul's letters that he calls himself humble. He did not see this, his position as one to be lorded over the church. He did not see it as a platform to gain power over other people. No, Paul saw his entire ministry as a place for him to serve others and to serve the Lord. And then in verse 24, we get to the most selfless testimony from the fact that he accounts his life as nothing. Look at verse 24. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This sounds a lot like his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 14, when he says that he counts everything lost except to know Christ, to know him, to be with him. He says at the end of that passage, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul was a humble servant leader of the church. He pastured from humility and from brokenness. This is what humility the humility out of which Paul pastored the church. Gospel humility that was produced from viewing his life in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul was not only a humble pastor, Paul was a tearful pastor. I know I cry sometimes. I, did, you know, I don't know how much you think of the Apostle Paul as a crier, but in verse 19, look what he says. With all humility and with tears. And with tears. In verse 31 he says it again, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This statement in verses 19 and 31 point to the fact that Paul pastored the flock at Ephesus with all that he was and all that he is. He was no mere professional. Paul was tearful because he invested his mind, his body, and his soul into this work of seeing people grow in the grace of God. He was not detached from the sheep, but rather he smelled like sheep. He invested his heart in the people so that they would know Christ and know him crucified. Pastors don't labor from a cold posture of professionalism. But true pastors, according to the example of Paul, invest all of their energy into loving the people God has entrusted to them. This is the way it should be. A pastor makes friends with the people. He treats them as his own family. He pulls them in close to love them and care for them. It's the way it should be. I sat in a seminary class where I was told that's not the way it should be. I was told by a professor that pastors should never befriend the people in their congregation. Never be close to them personally. Never let them see you as anything other than the man behind the pulpit. To that man, if he listens today, read Acts 20. The Apostle Paul spent his life with these people. He cried over these people. He loved them with a pastor's heart because he desired to see them grow in Christ. Paul was a sacrificial pastor through trials. In verse 19c, we see it. And then in verse 35, notice he says, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here is this passage. In this passage, he gives a cliff note version of what he says in 2 Corinthians 11 when he lists all of his trials and tribulations during his ministry. And we read in Ephesus that he faced a riot 
I mean, he was always facing something. But it was also the exhaustion that he willingly faced so that he could preach the gospel. Paul worked with his own hands during the day and preached the gospel in the late evening all the way into the night. Some scholars believe that at this time in his life, he was probably getting less than five hours of sleep a night as he toiled at making tents all day and preached the gospel in the late afternoon into the evening. And he did it day after day after day after day. He did it because he was by nature willing to sacrifice so that as many as possible would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave up position, power, profit, and peace so that the flock of God could know God. Paul was an impartial pastor. Look at verse 21. It says, testifying both to Jews and Greeks. <laughs> he didn't just choose the Jews because he was a Jew and that was easy for him, but he also loved the Greeks. And oh, how his Jewish stomach must have at first turned when he saw how the Greeks lived their lives. And yet he loved them and he cared for them and he got near them. We even though he ate at their tables, which was a huge deal, right? I mean, in Corinth, he gives instruction that when a man offers you something to eat, you eat it. You don't ask any questions about it. What do you think he was doing? He was telling you what his ethic was for living with the people. When these idol worshipers, former idol worshipers, whoever they are come, they offer me meat, I don't ask them where they got it. Because if I ask them and they say it went to idols, what do I have to do? I have to shun the food. So I don't ask so I can eat and have a clean conscience. But he did that. That's not some easy thing that he did as a Jew. It was hard, but he was impartial, so therefore he knew he had to eat at the table with the Greeks and eat at the table with the Jews. He cared for all the people. Paul was a hard-working pastor. As we've already mentioned, in verses 33 through 35, he gives testimony that he coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is not a universal mandate that pastors work outside of ministry, but if a pastor's unwilling to work that he might preach the gospel, then he probably is not a pastor. That man probably views it as a position, a job. We need to press hard into that. So, Paul set an example in this way of working hard. Paul was a preaching pastor. <laughs> My favorite part of the text, the part that I was talking to Amy about. How I did not shrink from declaring to you, verse 20, anything that was profitable. Notice what he said. I didn't shrink back from declaring, preaching, anything that was profitable. I didn't just teach you in public, but in home to home I taught you. Testifying both to Jews and Greeks, what? Repentance toward God. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only says it there, but look in verses 26 and 27 as he says to these men, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He was a preaching pastor. 31 through 32, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's central purpose in ministry was to preach the word of God and to teach it accurately. All of it. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We like that part. It's the next part we don't like in the modern church. Teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. This is what Paul did. He prided himself on it. This is the example of Paul to us about what it looks like to be a pastor. It's all-consuming, and yet there's tremendous satisfaction in the labor why is there tremendous satisfaction in such difficult work? Because the flock of God has been purchased by the blood of God. That's a strange phrase. I want us to look at it as we close. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God. It's not the pastor's church. It's God's church, which he obtained he bought it 
He purchased it. He redeemed it with his own blood. God, who is spirit, purchased with his own blood. This is the mystery of our faith, church. We have a God who is spirit, who eternally now, as the Son, Father in spirit, Son in flesh and bone. And that flesh and bone shed his blood for us. Our king died on the cross. But don't back away from this. Our king, our king is God. And so Paul doesn't back away from that truth. It isn't just a man out there that God saw and said, yeah, he's pretty good, I'll take him as a sacrifice. It's God himself who hung on the tree for these people and shed his own blood, the eternal spirit. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Why is it joyful to be a pastor? Because I get to love the people that Jesus loved enough to give his own life for them. I really don't like people as much as you think I do. <laughs> I don't. And the older I get, the less I like them. Myself included, just to be fair. But there is no greater moment than to sit or stand in this assembly with the Word of God open and know that my brothers and sisters are eating a feast. This is what the world is about. The church is the flock of God that he bought with his own blood. The motivation of the elder, pastor, overseer, as Paul says, is that he has been called to watch over the people of God's own possession. These are the precious souls that he bought with his blood. Listen, this is a glorious truth for us today. God bought us with his own blood, and now he has appointed for himself shepherds to oversee those souls who wouldn't want to do this work? We've been bought back from sin, death, Satan, by the precious blood of Jesus. The chief shepherd has not called any pastor to give more than he himself gave. No one serves God. God serves us, and it's through his service that we serve. We serve a God who willingly died to ransom us back from our wicked ways. Grace Fellowship, you are infinitely valuable to God because he made you part of his family, ransomed you back from sin and death, and reconciled you to himself by the life of his eternal and only son. Pastors of Grace Fellowship, we have been called to watch over what he has already purchased by his blood and he will not ever lose, not one of them, but raise them from the dead on that glorious day. And we can never shrink back from this calling because that would mean we are denying the value of God's flock. And therefore, we are denying the value of God's own blood. Let's remain faithful to the call of the Spirit that he has placed on us and follow the example of the Apostle Paul, watching over our own soul and then watching over the soul of the flock which God has entrusted to us. And if you're an outsider and you don't know this God that I'm talking about and you don't know what it means to be a part of this and you look at it and think, what in the world are these people so crying and weeping and excited about? May I just frankly tell you, you don't know what life is. Because you are dead in your sins and trespasses. And Jesus Christ himself holds himself out to you saying, come. All of you come who are weary. And I'll give you rest. Take the bread which you cannot buy and eat it and live. Take the water which is beyond price of silver and gold and drink it until your soul is satisfied in me. Come join the family of God. Jesus has a seat at his table for some of you who are not yet at the table. That's what I'm telling you. 
And he, the master of the feast, is calling you. He, the great shepherd, is hooking you. Don't resist his call. Repent of your sins, every one of you, and turn to him who is able to save you from yourself, from your sin, from this world, and from Satan. And sit at his table and be watched over by his shepherds so that you can join him in that celestial city. Won't you come with me, Grace Fellowship? Won't you come? Won't you come and join me on this journey that we might lift one another up and build one another up into our Savior, Jesus Christ, ahead in love? That's the invitation today. We're just going to pray. I'm going to speak a blessing. We're going to be done. Is that okay with you? No? Some of you want me to keep preaching. I didn't preach the fun part of the text. Come back next week. Let's pray, Father. As we close this time, we think about your word and the seriousness of being a pastor. These people need you to show them the way they need you to show them through your word. And they need you to show them through the lives of your men that you've called and placed here. Thank you for the leaders of this church. Thank you for the call on our lives. But most of all, thank you for each precious soul that is a part member of this family, this local family, an expression of your kingdom on earth. We pray we might shepherd well. In these days we might call repentance, call for confession, call for right living, and offer and extend to every weary, tired soul what only you can give them, grace and mercy in a time of need. Lord, would you save someone today in this place? And would you strengthen all the saved? Through the power of your spirit, we pray this. Amen.